close out Philippians chapter 1 today. Philippians chapter 1 will start in verse 27 while you're finding your way and as the children are making their way to Children's Church. Just want to let you know uh, Pastor Dan and I will both be ministering next week, next Sunday. I'll be at Iowa Regular Baptist Camp serving as chairman for Family Camp 4. Uh, and Pastor Dan's going to be speaking at a wilderness camp in Michigan, so pray for him. He has uh, some messages to polish off and get ready for that, but we'll have a guest speaker next Sunday, Dr. Tim Little, so I'm sure you'll want to be here for that. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, begin in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent... I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word tells us who we are, tells us who you are, and the great chasm that is between us. Your word tells us about Jesus and his sacrifice so that we might believe and have life and have that chasm removed. Your word tells us the great news of our salvation, and we thank you for it. But as we see in today's passage, your word also tells us that we will suffer. So Father, help us to understand your word well today, and to pl apply it to our own lives as we, your children, are truly called to suffer. Father, take us through whatever trials you need to take us to, to conform us to the image of your Son. So we ask that you would speak to us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Our series is The Mind of Christ as we make our way through the book of Philippians. Paul's intent is that the readers of the Word of God, the original uh, audience, of course, are the churches in Philippi, but that we also would have the mind of Christ, that we would think like Jesus thinks, that we would care the way Jesus cares. See, Jesus put the needs of others ahead of his own. He would have never gone to the cross if he were putting his own needs first, right? He cared for the marginalized, the outcasts, the well-known sinners. Jesus was humble, never demanding the status that was rightly his. And above all, Jesus always did what the Father desired. Oh, that we would be like Christ. Having our priorities straight, caring the way he cared, obeying the Father as he obeyed. 
the Christ-mindedness theme of today's passage is a gospel-based unity. We're going to see that in the first half of today's passage, uh, that we would be unified under the gospel of Christ. Patrick Henry, at his final public speech, he didn't know it was going to be his final one, but it was his final one, he famously said, united we stand, divided You know how this ends, right? Divided we fall. Now, he could have been paraphrasing any number of passages of Scripture that talk about, but what he was trying to do was was make a point about uh, the federal government. There were a couple states that were trying to wield the authority to veto any federal law that they chose. Doesn't that actually sound like a good idea sometimes? There are some federal laws that I'm sure you and I would agree on that just need to go. But Patrick Henry was actually right. If states had the capacity to override the federal government, we would no longer have a union. The the, the United States of America is better as a union than as a divided nation. So in his concept of the, the necessity of unity, Patrick Henry was definitely right. The unity of the church, however, is of greater necessity than the unity of the nation. In fact, the United States could completely fall apart and the church would still be fine, right? But if the church falls apart, that impacts far more than the nation falling apart. The unity of the church is not based on people merely agreeing with each other, though There are many things on which we should agree. The unity of the church is not based on our written documents, our constitution. The unity of the church is not based on the personality of the pastors or the style of music or the color of the carpet. No, the unity of the church is based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we will keep that front and center then we will do what God wants. And what God wants in this passage is to unify his people in the gospel. That is our big idea. We'll add to it a bit later. Uh, But to start off with, God wants to unify his people in the gospel. So look with me, if you would, at verses 27 and 28. When we are part of a community, there are behavioral expectations. It doesn't matter what what size that community is or how formal or how informal that community is. There are uh, a level of expectation when you are part of a community. For instance, a very informal community, and using that term very loosely, would be like going to a park for a summer picnic. And there are certain expectations that are completely unwritten but would be kind of odd if you didn't follow. For instance... It is not up to community standards for you to show up at a park and then just go to some random shelter where other people are eating and start taking their food. That would be a little weird, wouldn't it? Now, I don't think I've ever seen a park that has a rule that says, don't crash other people's picnics, but it'd be kind of weird if you did that. There's this expectation of community when you go to a park. Now, if someone there looks at you and says, oh, we've got plenty of burgers, just come on over, then it's okay, right? Other communities are much more formal. Uh, From, I think it was 2004 
2012, we lived in Dallas, Texas. And in the Dallas area, uh, there are gated communities. We don't exactly have those in Harlem, but we had those in Dallas. And, and it wasn't unusual to go by a place where if you didn't have permission to go into the community, you just couldn't even drive down the street. Uh, they, they had things locked, locked up. Um, not too far from where we lived, there was a new gated community being established. Now, the community was well-established. All the houses were 30, 40, 50 years old, uh, but they were installing gates and security systems, and that was a bit odd. We learned very quickly what was going on. It's not because uh, this was a super expensive neighborhood. Uh, it was not because of the value of the properties. It was because of their newest resident. George and Laura Bush bought a house on this street, and so it needed to become a gated community. All of a sudden, to get into that community, it was no longer uh, come up with the financing and buy a property. No, you had to be vetted now to live in this community. There were different expectations now because of what was going on in that community. All of that to say this, in verse 27, where it says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. That phrase, let your manner of life, is really the verb form of the word community. The way you live amongst the people. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's our activity as God's community that should be found worthy of that eternal citizenship that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, once we realize what he's saying here, that, that our lives as citizens of heaven ought to be worthy of what Christ paid for us, and we recognize what Christ did for us, all of a sudden that's a very high calling, isn't it? Paul gives us a few characteristics of uh, what it will look like if we are truly living worthy of the gospel. Before he does so, he, he adds this phrase that whether I come and see you or am absent, that I might hear that you are doing well. When the cat's away, the mice will play. Paul wants to make sure that even though he may not be with them, that they're actually doing this. It's, it, I always find it suspicious when I walk into the living room and immediately my children stop what they're doing and do something else. Hmm, what were you doing that you don't want me to know about? Sometimes it's very innocent. They were just ignoring their homework and realized, oh no, I need to be working on my homework, so quickly they started. Other times I have to wonder, what were they doing? Part of growing up is being responsible to do what you're supposed to be doing even if no one is supervising. It's true in our physical lives. It's true in our spiritual life. And that's what Paul's alluding to here. I, I want you to make this a part of who you are so that even unsupervised, you are living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So what are these characteristics? Um, you would think with this sort of preamble of, uh, of make sure that your life is is worthy of the gospel of Christ, you would think that he would launch into a, a great big list of do's and don'ts. So always be doing this and this and this and this and this, but don't ever do that, 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 that. There are plenty of places in scripture where there are those lists, but that's not what he does here. Rather, he emphasizes that unity in the church is a way that our lives should live up to the expectation of the gospel. 
that we would be unified, standing firm, as he puts it, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. How we think and feel and, and the intention that we have in what we're doing ought to be unified as Christ's body. There's no, it's not helpful to take this word spirit and mind and try to uh, decipher between the two. He's just talking about the immaterial part of who we are. That each one of us, in who we are and how we think, that we would be unified under the gospel of Christ. Yes, our actions are important, but his point here is our attitudes, our thought processes. So the writer gives us two facets of our being that must be unified, the spirit and the mind, and he gives us action words, two action words, standing and striving. We often think of standing as being a passive activity, just being there on your feet. That's not what the Holy Spirit is guiding Paul to say. That's not what he, the, it's not really how the original audience would have understood this as they were reading it in Greek and understanding Greek. Um, so the reason, so that's the reason in English it says standing firm. It's not just standing. There's standing with uh, an active sense to it. Think about standing in a rushing stream. You may not be physically moving, but that water is moving against you. And so for you to stand still, you have to have some action to it, some activity to it. That's uh, what's happening in this active verb, standing. The other verb he uses is striving, striving for the faith. We must fight to believe. We must. Because the, the tempter will give us all sorts of reasons to not believe. He will give us all sorts of reasons to doubt what the word of God says, to doubt whether or not it's true. He will try to get you to trust in your own good works rather than continuing to rest in the completed work of Jesus Christ. He might also cause you to doubt because of opposition to you. In fact, he talks about opposition, verse 28, and not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. When we stand firm, striving for the faith, being undeterred by whatever the world might throw at us, our persistence in this face of persecution will sing, signal to the rest of the world that God is active in us. They will know by how we suffer, that God is active in us. And he goes beyond that. Those who are uh, actively persecuting us, our calmness, our humility, our resilience in the face of suffering and trial will help them understand that they're not going to last. That's what he says. He says it's a clear sign to them of their destruction. Our testimony through trial will convince them that our God is indeed the God, that he will save us, but destroy them. God wants to unify his people in the gospel. I'm going to add to that. God wants to unify his people in the gospel through trial. I don't like that. 
And if you're honest, you don't either, right? None of us wants to suffer. And yet, clearly, that's what he's talking about here, that we will suffer. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That first word there, for. Very key. Follow the line of argument. In the previous verses, you must live your life in a manner consistent with the gospel. The good news that through faith you have received righteous standing, not of your own, it's, it's Christ's gift to you. You have been forgiven of your sin through the sacrifice of Jesus. So live in a manner consistent with the gospel. Live as citizens of heaven and do not be afraid. Why? For it has been granted to you from God that you should suffer. Granted. That's a word of giving, isn't it? It is a gift to you that you should suffer. Let that simmer just a moment. Notice what else Paul says has been granted. He says, For it has been granted to you that you believe in him. So let's not skip past that and just jump to the suffering. It is God's good gift to you that you believe. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ right here today, you have been granted that from God because uh, spiritual truths are undiscernible unless the Spirit of God awakens you. And that is not my theology. That's biblical theology. That is found all throughout Scripture. John 6, 44. Jesus lets everyone know who will listen. The disciples, the Pharisees. He says, it is, uh, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Who can come to the Lord? No one unless the Father draws him. That verse continues. It says, and I will raise him up on the last day. So if the Father draws someone, that someone will believe in God, will make sure that that someone stays saved and will be raised up at the last day. A lot of theology packed into one verse. If you believe, it's because God has granted to you life. That doesn't remove our responsibility to respond in faith, okay? That does not remove our responsibility to turn from our sin and to live for Jesus. The fact of the matter is, is if you believe and you have turned from your sin and you are trying to live a righteous life to please the Lord, then you are doing so because God has granted it to you. Another verse, Ephesians 1, 4. That before the foundations of the world, Jesus chose us in him. All these passages point to the fact that, uh, that God is sovereign over salvation. It has been granted to you that you believe and that you also suffer for his sake. They go together. I don't know about you, but I've never actually tried to witness to someone, evangelize to someone. You know, 
God will change your life. If you will turn in faith to him, uh, he will remove your sin. He will give you Christ's righteousness, and he'll give you a home in heaven. Uh, but by the way, you're going to suffer between now and then. Maybe I should. I don't know. It's biblical. The God who granted to you salvation, the God who provided the means of salvation through the sacrifice of the Son, the God who uses his spirit to give you understanding of the word so that you can respond in faith, he also grants to you suffering. Let me add a couple more words straight from the passage. He has granted to you that you would suffer for his sake. That's important. Our suffering is not just because the world is broken. Our suffering is so that we would show the glories of Christ through our suffering for his sake. It is God's good working in believers that we should suffer. Let me say that again. It is God's good working that we should suffer. How are you suffering? Maybe life is calm and easy right now. That, that's possible. But all believers have suffered. All believers will suffer. How are you suffering? I spoke to a man this week who is suffering in significant ways. Uh, he's, he's not from, from this church, um, but he is a believer. And I hurt for him because he is suffering very intently. He knows that God is good. You know that God is good, right? He knows that God is all-powerful, can change every circumstance that is causing his suffering today. And you know that God is all-powerful, right? He knows that for those who love God, all things work together for good. He knows this. You know this. Romans 8.28 is one of those verses, maybe we don't get the word order quite right, but we get the gist. That all things work together for good to them who love God and are called according to his purpose. He knows all these things, yet he suffers still the same. Why? Part of the answer is because God does not promise relief from our suffering in this lifetime. There are pl plenty of churches out there that proclaim that you can be free from all your pains in this lifetime if you just believe enough. If you have just enough faith or put just enough money in the offering plate. But those preachers are snake oil salesmen. They are not heralds of the truth. The truth is God does not promise us relief from suffering in this lifetime. He promises relief after 
He promises that he'll make all things new. Well, if that's the case, if the, if the reality is, is Christians suffer, why become a Christian? What's the point? Now, this is a, a natural perspective. But the biblical perspective is so much better. The biblical perspective is that God chooses us to suffer in this life so that the real inner man, the one that is occupied by the Holy Spirit, you know, remember that the, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells each believer so that the Holy Spirit can have his work in our lives and so what is inside can be evident more so to those on the outside. You're chosen to suffer so that others will see your godly character rather than succumbing to bitterness and anger. This suffering is temporary. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all com comparison. Light momentary affliction. It seems heavy in the moment. It is heavy in the moment. But compared to eternity, it is light and it is momentary, preparing us for that eternal weight of glory. God wants to unify his people in the gospel through trial. We like that first part. We like being a church united. We like having things in common. We like being with people that think the same way that we do. But the whole part of this passage is unity through suffering. God wants to unify his people and he's going to use suffering to bring about the gospel unity that he desires in us. And not in the, the flippant sense of misery loves company. No. He wants us to stand united under the gospel knowing that trials and suffering are the blast furnace that purifies us, that shapes us and molds us to be more like Jesus. Some of us are in that blast furnace right now. Uh, this morning I sat and just tried to think through people in the church and things you're going through and dozen and a half easily. I'm sure I could double that if I actually went through the whole list and thought through everyone in their circumstances. Some of us are suffering right now, but we're reminded from the word of God this morning that God is the one who has granted us, given us the good gift of salvation, has put us in this church that we might be unified, that we might strive together for the gospel, and that unified under the gospel of Christ, we can endure these trials. Does that make the pain less? Not really. 
because the pain still hurts. But what it does is it helps us to see God's purpose in it. And when we see God's purpose in it, we can endure. Unified as the body of Christ, we can help one another endure these trials. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the church. For we are the body of Christ. We have been ordained by your sovereign plan that we would stand together, standing firm and striving for the gospel, knowing that although suffering is our reality, our suffering does not have the final word. Thank you that you have the final word. And so as your bride awaiting the bridegroom, awaiting the time when Jesus will return to gather us. Lord, we know we're going to suffer. We know that, uh, that we are going to have the adversary against us trying to cause us to doubt the faith, help us to stand firm. We have a world against us who uh, would try to tell us that our thoughts and ideas are old-fashioned and not applicable to today, help us to strive for the gospel. Father, your word tells us that just as you have granted us salvation, you've also granted that we should stand through trials and tribulations. Help us to stand well. Help us to not waver in our faith. Help us to, uh, to be the ones who help others as they suffer Help us to reach out to our brothers and sisters in Christ when we are the ones suffering. We know that that will honor you. We know that your spirit will use us in those situations so that we might grow closer to you and that we might long for the day when we see you face to face. Thank you for both the encouragement and the challenge from your word this morning. Help us to grow in Christ today. In Jesus' name, amen.